This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Green and Bold Podcast. My name is Joe Stiglitz. Good to see my co-host, David Feldman. Feldy, good to see you. Still seeing you through a Zoom window. We're doing the Zoom thing still, but it's always good to see you no matter what the format is. How are you doing these days? I am doing well, Joe. It's good to see you. And I might, this might shock you. I'm actually uh, feeling pretty positive about things, actually. You're talking baseball-wise, uh, A standpoint, baseball-wise, thinking we may we may see baseball sometime soon. Is that what you're, what you're getting at here? Yeah, we're, we're recording this on 2-2-2-2-0-2-2. Uh, um deuces are wild deuces are wild baby i just i'm I'm feeling pretty positive that they're going to come to an agreement by february 28th i think they know there's a deadline to start the season on time and they know what it's going to take to come to an agreement and we're seeing in each day right these incremental changes in their positions so they know what it's going to take both sides know right now it's just for the next few days it's just trying to get the best deal for their side Right. And that's part of this whole bargaining. They know there's a deadline. There's a time limit. I think it's we've seen this a little bit before. I, I just I have a positive feeling that this is going to get settled by next Monday. Yeah, I, I see what you're getting at. I think I think you're right. Um, there's not a ton of compromise at this point because there doesn't have to be quite yet. But I, I think you're right. Is this deadline to to get something done and not sacrifice any of the regular season or get it started on time? Um, this deadline we're talking about around the 28th or so. Um, yeah, I think we'll see a little more urgency and a little more, a little more giving in and a little more, hopefully, yeah, a little more, a little more compromise. How about the fact that let's get the season started on time. We don't want to go two out of the past three years, just having a funky start to the season after we had it a couple of years ago with 2020 and the very, very, you know, summertime start to the season and 60 games. Let's just get back to normal and, and stay normal, have a full, full season. It's not fun talking about labor negotiations, is it? There's not a whole lot of fun to talk about when it comes to this stuff. It gets old pretty quick. It does. And I was thinking about this today when I was looking at some of the numbers being tossed around and then talking about minimum salaries. And we're going to start at 750 and then we're going to go up. And this is where you lose touch with the public. And this is why the public gets fed up with both sides, right? Because you're talking about a job that pays $750,000 where a huge majority of the public would would go crazy for a gig like that, mm-hmm. right? They're not making close to that much money and they can't understand while, why this is happening. Why are we arguing over this much? Because when you just put the numbers out there bare, it does make no sense. So it would behoove baseball to stop this publicly. And I've, I've always felt this with a lot of the negotiations is you need to keep it more private and deal with yourself. You're not going to get anybody on your side. When you start talking these huge financial numbers, because to the average Joe, which is most of us, we have no concept of what, why they would be arguing over this. I'm well with you. You're right. You're most people are thinking, well, if only I got paid that much to play a game, you know, I would do that for a living, right. which is kind of too simplistic a way to look at it. But, but you're right. That's how, that's how the public sees it. That's what they're seeing right now. That's the viewpoint. That's the viewpoint they take. Um, I think it's a good, that's a good point you make there. So um yeah i think let's hope they just come to that agreement again if spring training gets shortened well it would be shortened if we're going to start the regular season on time i think that's okay i don't think you need the full six weeks 
Um, we shaved down spring training a little bit. So, um, yeah, let's just get seeing some baseball in Arizona. We're used to seeing shots, visuals from the desert yeah. at this point, right? Teams yeah. stretching, pitchers throwing to catchers and that kind of thing. And um, we want to see that right now. It's getting that time where it feels like baseball should be here. It's really feeling that way right now. No, this is the time where we hear somebody throws the first bullpen and, and a catcher will say, well, it's never been better. It's the best he's ever looked. I'm in the best shape of my career. Put on 10 pounds, but it's good weight. It's good, good, it's a good 10 pounds. And then somebody else, his action, his action on his pitches. He's never had that action before. Right. No one's ever thrown a bad bullpen the first week of spring training. You know, so catchers never come out and said, ooh, not good. Just like nobody's ever undergone an unsuccessful surgery, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, so we don't have a whole lot of A's, current A's stuff to talk about right now as far as them being on the field because they're not, they're not on the field yet. So we kind of thought it'd be a good time to dive into um, some A's history a little bit. And I think we're tackling one of the meteor topics we can talk about today because I, I think we need to talk about the John Lester trade, the John Lester Jonas Cespedes trade of 2014. It's pretty polarizing. A's fans have a strong take on it, no matter what it is. And I think it's a good one for us to talk about because I think you and I have each talked about it before. I think we, we've got some strong thoughts on it. But I think just to kind of set the, the broad landscape here, when you look at this trade, obviously the A's swing a trade for John Lester at the trade deadline, right at the trade deadline, July 31st, 2014, um, when they have the best record in baseball at that time. And they get John Lester, but they give up Jonas Cespedes, a crowd favorite and kind of a cornerstone of that A's lineup. Okay, so the second half unfolds, and the A's, after having this terrific first half, they really kind of sputter to the finish line. And it takes a, 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 a shutout by Sonny Gray on the final day of the regular season for them to get into the wild card spot. And they lose a heartbreaker to the Kansas City Royals in the wild card game, a game that John Lester starts. And so I think, Feldy, so many fans look at it like, boy, we gave up Ioannis Cespedes. We got John Lester, but we didn't quite get everything out of it at all that we thought we'd get out of that trade. I think that's the prevailing thought for a lot of people. Uh, first of all, would you agree that's the prevailing thoughts? And 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 I guess kind of big picture, what goes through your mind when you think about this trade? Actually, I don't think that's the prevailing thought. I think the prevailing thought is fans think John Lester sucked. That's that's what I got when John Lester announced his retirement, and A's fans started coming out talking about how bad John Lester was and this and that, and that could be not further from the truth. And that's what kind of spurred me on to this is that John Lester gets a bad rap for his time with the A's. And we need to set the record straight on that. Not just his last two months with the A's, but also that wild card game. What I do agree upon, and I said at the morning of the trade, it was a terrible trade. It's not John Lester's fault that this trade happened. John Lester did, like I said, he, he did his job and we're going to prove it to you. The trade itself didn't need to happen, and it was a bad trade. It was a bad trade to give up Ioannis Cespedes to get John Lester. If they were to give up Coco Chris for John Lester, I would have said that's an unbelievable trade. But when you gut your offense with your number three or, or four hitter, uh, a first-place club, there's only one other time in history that's happened. A first-place club traded their three or four hitter at the deadline, and that was your 1992 Oakland A's when they did that with Jose Canseco on August 31st, and the trade deadline was the end of August. Um, you just don't do that. 
And it, it, we need to kind of go back to that 2014 season. As you said, the A's, they were the best team in baseball, right? Especially over the, over the first two and a half months, they were unbelievable and they were riding high. Um, but they kind of knew when it came to their pitching staff, excuse me, um, they might've been a little light, right? Because you had Sonny Gray and Scott Casimir at the top. But your next three starters were Jesse Chavez, Tommy Malone, Drew Pomerantz. So they kind of knew that they needed to punch up the starting staff. And they did that, right? They did that on July 4th, July 5th, when they traded for Jeff Samarja and Jason Hamill. And they gave up just prospects, right? They gave up Addison Russell and Billy, Billy McKinney. Dan Straley as well. But Addison Russell was the big time prospect. One of the top guys in the A system. But I've always been for trading prospects for proven players. I have no problem with that. I think it's something that should always be done, especially when you're in a chance to win. You know, Samarja had one more year left on his contract. He was having a ter terrific year with the Cubs, a very Samarja-like year where he pitches really well, doesn't get a lot of run support, so his record doesn't really show it, but he's always keeping his team in games. And Jason Hamill was off to his best season, a veteran pitcher, but this was his best year of his career. Um, but it was going to fortify that A's staff. So I thought at that time, that was brilliant, right? To, to now you had this rotation with Gray, Casimir, Samarja, Hamill, uh, and Tommy Malone. But you also had Chavez now in the bullpen. You had Pomeranz in the bullpen. So you made yourself deeper. So that was a very, that was a good trade. And then July happens. And Samarja is okay, but Jason Hamill's terrible. His first four starts with the A's were not good. And the A's started to see their lead in the vision slip. The Angels were coming. Um, you know, by the end of July, they were still the best record in baseball, but they were a 500 team over the last three weeks of July. And they felt they still needed to do more. And at the time, it was talked about doing more for the postseason. We want to get stronger for the postseason. And to do that, they felt getting John Lester, a proven postseason pitcher, who in 2013, just the year before, was nails in the postseason for the Red Sox, leading them to a championship, especially in the World Series, with two unbelievable starts. But it was just too much to give up. I, I just I remember waking up that morning and turning on MLB Network and hearing about that trade and going, no, no, you don't give up a dynamic player. And this was the morning of the trade. This is not looking back. This is how I felt when I first read about it or saw it on, on the news there. Uh, I just thought it was a bad move for the A's. Again, nothing against John Lester, proven pitcher, is going to help the team, but not at the cost of giving up uh, Cespedes. What do you remember you feeling when you first heard about the trade? I remember it happened really early in the morning. That was an early work day. It was the early morning of July 31st, deadline day. And I just remember this big blockbuster, truly a deadline deal right at the deadline, just a few hours before the deadline happened. I just remember thinking, this is massive. This is huge. I was shocked they gave up Ioannis Cespedes. I, my reaction differed from yours and that's, I thought it made baseball sense from the standpoint that I really saw the ace pitching being in trouble at that point, and you've alluded to it a little bit. Um, first of all, I will say, I agree with you. The July 4th trade was great. Not only did you get one stud pitcher in Samarja, you scored two starting pitchers out of it. So it was a bad sign where later that same month, after giving up 
prospects you gave up and you get two starting pitchers back, you still feel like you have to go out and acquire more starting pitching. That's a bad thing. When you made your big starting pitching move early in the month and by the end of the month, you got to go out and get more starting pitching. Um, but I saw the state of the A's rotation. I said, some of these guys are running on fumes. Jesse Chavez was looking very shaky in the starts he had made leading up to that. Jason Hamill, as you mentioned, 0-4. ERA was in the nines at that point in four starts with the A's. So they were not getting what they thought from him. So the fact that they pulled the trigger on the Lester trade showed that something had gone very wrong with that first trade, and they weren't anticipating it. And you wouldn't have anticipated it with Jason Hamill, as good as he was with the Cubs. So, um, so I was shocked. But, I mean, I have to be honest now. You know, back then when it happened, I, I, I gave it a thumbs up saying, man, they got, they're giving up a heck of a lot of offense with Jonas Cespedes. But maybe with all this pitching they're adding, they can make up for it a little bit. Well, and they were they were correct yeah. because you know after Sonny Gray and Scott Casimir both had really good Julys, they had they were really bad the rest of the season. Yeah, uh, Scott Casimir was three and six with six point oh five. Sonny Gray was two and seven. ZRA was three point eight three, so it was still decent, but he he was struggling. Um, they were right about the staff. Now, luckily, Jason. Hamill actually turned it around and pitched a lot better than I even remember looking back at the numbers over the last two months of the year with the A's. He had a 2.49 ERA, yeah, uh, which was really good. And Samarja was Samarja, right? 3.12 ERA, but a three and five record because that's what Jeff Samarja does. Yeah. He did it for his career. He pitched well, and the record never really showed it. So it, it I, they were correct that they needed more pitching. And it's just, to me, it was that they gave up the offense to get it, and that really killed them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those points where um, when you just look at it, we're giving up this, we're going to get back that. Sometimes as we learned the trade like this, it's not always that easy. We did find that out with this trade, just the presence of Cespedes. Now, look, the guy was kind of injury prone at times. He was prone to goofy, doing goofy things in the outfield. You know, he was a little unpredictable at times, but he was such a presence. He was such a presence to the opposing pitching staff and they saw him in the on-deck circle and he was such a presence to his teammates as well. Quote from Josh Reddick that day, he told the San Francisco Chronicle, my mind is blown, he said, at the idea of trading Cespedes. That's what he said. I mean, one of the main players in the A's lineup said that. That kind of is revealing as far as, you know, psychologically, what A's were, what the A's as players, I think, what as a team, what they were dealing with, seeing Cespedes go probably. Um, and boy, you know what else was, was really tough for the A's? The first game back after that trade, what happens, Feldy? They get blanked 1-0 against who? Against the Kansas City Royals. They lose 1-0. The offense can't do anything. And it's just this omen of what we would see over the second half of the season. Yeah. You know, on, on the morning of July 31st, when, when the A's woke up, they were 66-41. and 41. They had the best record in the majors. They had scored the most runs in the majors. And they allowed the fourth fewest. So this And this is even after, again, those struggling few weeks in, in July still in really good shape and told you how good they were in, in April and May. Um, but from August 1st on, 22 and 33, second worst in the American League. Only the White Sox were worst. They scored the third fewest runs in the American League. Yet they're pitching because of the help. It stayed okay. They, 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 gave, they allowed the third fewest runs. And that's a lot of credit to John Lester. And so back to our point, John Lester was really good for the A's. And they don't get the wild card without John Lester. He made 11 starts 
for the athletics, 11 quality starts, meaning every time he went out there, he pitched six or more and gave up three earned runs or less. That is quality pitching. Uh, his record was six and four. His ERA was 2.35, right? This guy and those 11 starts gave the A's a chance to win in all 11 of them. He was everything they could have hoped for. He was definitely a horse on the mound. I remember, you know, when it was John Lester starting day, a lot of positivity that you were going to win that day. John Lester gave them exactly what they were hoping. You can make the case that he was never better at any stretch of the regular season, his career than he was with the A's. I mean, that was ERA wise. That season was, he had a two, four, six ERA for that season combined with Boston and Oakland. As you mentioned with the A's two, three, five, I'm the only season that was better for him. And then with the Cubs in 2016, he had a two, four, four ERA. So he was really good, man. 76 and two thirds innings with Oakland over those 11 starts, 76 and two thirds innings. He had 71 strikeouts and 16 walks. Um, you mentioned that the 11 quality starts in six of those 11, he went seven innings or more. Um, and both him and Samarja were terrific as far as eating up innings and, and taking some pressure off the bullpen. So you had your two horses at the start of the, uh, at the front of the rotation there. But as you mentioned, the offense, and you, you threw some of the stats out there as far as the A's offense, what they did. Um, OPS, they were, I believe they were tied for sixth in OPS before the all-star break as a team. After the All-Star break, they were they were 25th. Now, using the All-Star break doesn't correlate perfectly with the Cespedes trade, but it's roughly around the same time frame. Just the offense was really was really struggling. Look, you still had Josh Donaldson in the three-hole, but I, I think for for JD, I think all of a sudden he took on a lot more pressure, a lot more pressures on his shoulders um, offensively. Brandon Moss really struggled that second half too. He really yeah. struggled. He was such a big bat for the A's, but he struggled in that second half. And you know, I remember from that second half Feldy is Josh Donaldson was the star of the team. He was always the go-to guy for quotes and he was just getting worn out with a lot of uh, so many people coming to him after games, trying to explain what's going on here, what's going on there. I think it wore on him a little bit because it was the same story as the A's were starting to struggle offensively over and over. And I just think um, after Cespedes left, the other big bats kind of felt the pressure to do a little bit too much. And it was, it was tough and they, they couldn't, they couldn't do it in the record. The win-loss record showed in the second half it reflected that. Yeah, the A's didn't really expect the Brandon Moss injury situation, right? Because he, he hurt his hip and he was just not the same player after the All-Star break. He, he, this, he was an All-Star, right? So he hits yeah. 21 homers before the All-Star break. He hits four afterwards. Yeah. He hits 173 after the All-Star. I mean, he was hurting and, and losing that production. So now you lose the Moss production and the Cespedes production. So what do you do? You, you try and make up for it and they go out and they get Adam Dunn, right? The big donkey. They get Adam <laughs> Dunn. So you, your DH situation now is basically a platoon of Adam Dunn and Nate Fryman. Uh, it's not going well. It's not helping the middle of the lineup, right? It's, they really struggle to score runs. Um, because they're, you know, Moss's injury, no Cespedes, and you're right about Donaldson. I think he definitely felt the way of the team on his shoulders, and it started to wear on him, especially in September when the A's were really leaning on him to produce, and it, it got to be too much because um, you lose that, that, that kingpin in the middle of the lineup where all the focus is. No matter if Cespedes is slumping or he's red hot, he is always the focus of the opposing team. When's he coming up? Where is he in the lineup? 
uh, it changes things. Those dynamic players just change things. You know, we had a little taste of it last season with the A's when the A's added Starling Marte. Dynamic player where you always had to know where he was because not so much with the power with Marte, but just getting on base because he was a triple when he got on base. Um, and it just changes the way a team is pitched to. And the A's couldn't recover from that. So again, which goes back to my thing, the trade itself, never a fan of. John Lester, however, did really, really well for the A's and A's fans need to remember that. So let's uh, let's fast forward. Well, the A's did get into the postseason that year. It took an incredible effort from Sonny Gray um, final day of the regular season. There was a shutout in Arlington against the Rangers. Really, one of the more clutch starts in regular season A's history over the past couple decades, you'd have to say. I mean, it was it was quite a performance he put up. And the A's needed that just to get into the wild card game and go to Kansas City. He was fantastic that day against the Rangers. Yeah, he was. It was you know, it was Tim Hudson the final day game of the 2000 season, where you needed uh, somebody to be an ace, be state Dave Stewart like out there and just shut the other team down and give the A's the best chance to win. And, and he did that. And it lined up perfectly for the A's going to the wild card game because now you have John Lester, the guy you went out and got, the guy you went out and gutted your offense for because you needed his pitching and his experience in the postseason. And now here you go, John Lester, the ace, takes them out in the wild card game. He does. And he pitches not his best game, not a dominant effort, not a gem by any means. But he pitches pretty well. He pitches into the eighth inning, and the A's are leading seven to four when he leaves. But Felder, before we talk about him specifically, we also have to get into the game that Brandon Moss had that day. Oh, Two home run game for Brandon Moss. I'm in Kauffman Stadium press box that day covering this game, and as he's circling the bases after a second homer, I'm thinking, what an incredible storyline and moment this is for the A's. This offense that struggled so mightily through the second half, it's actually the offense. That's going to carry the day in this do or die wild card game and is going to carry them into a division series against the Angels. And I'm going to tell you right now, I was thinking at that night, I like the A's chances. I like their matchup going against the Angels in the ALDS. If that's that's how it was going to play out had they won that night. And Brandon Moss hits two home runs. Magnificent night for him after his tough second half of the season. I'm just thinking what a great way for them to catapult really into the postseason from this wild card game. Um, and it's a 73 lead for John Lester. And he leaves the game at seven to four and he leaves a couple runners on. I know when he leaves the game, but I think you're talking about ace fans need to remember. Um, and I'm not trying to like scold ace fans here. You need to think this, but let's just give some perspective here. John Lester pitched into the eighth inning of this game and he left with a seven to four lead and the A's were very close to the finish line and pandemonium breaks out from then. I mean, it was an incredible game, wild finish and just a heartbreaker, but he got him to that point. Yeah. So let's break it down a little bit. Yeah. Right. So Moss hits the two run homer in the first unbelievable again, because of how, how bad he was struggling off a big game, James Shields. Uh, and so Lester takes them out on the bottom first. And you're right. Lester wasn't peak postseason Lester to start the game. He gives a run back in the bottom of the first, uh, gives up a stolen base. Now this was a big story going into that game because John Lester doesn't make pickoff throws to first base. He had some sort of thing about it where he just doesn't throw it at first, right? And the Royals were a team that, that's going to run. So in the first inning with two outs, Ioki steals second. And that's fine because you have Eric Hosmer up, left-handed hitter. 
this Eric Hosmer, this name's going to ring true for the rest of this game. Um, if there's a villain, I don't think I don't think Ace fans have enough villainy for Eric Hosmer in this game because Hosmer walks against John Lester. And that brings up someone the A's do feel as a villain, but not for this game, but for his A's career, Billy Butler. And Billy Butler hits an RBI single, actually a rope to left field, that Sam Fold actually makes a really nice play to hold Hosmer to third base. Um, so now it's two to one. Again, this happens with two outs. It's first and third. And this is a play people might forget, is the Royals, knowing Lester doesn't try and throw over, they send Billy Butler kind of hoping to get him in a rundown, maybe send Hosmo or just steal the base outright. Well, Lester steps off, throws to Jed Lowry at short. He throws over to first baseman Stephen Vogt, and Vogt throws out Hosmer at the plate. So we got actually got a pickoff there by John Lester. Um, Lester goes out, gets out of the second inning. We go to the bottom of the third. It's still two to one. But Derek Norris hurts himself, hurts his thumb, or I'm sorry, Giovanni Soto hurts his thumb, right. and Derek Norris replaces him at catcher, going to the bottom of the third. So now John Lester has to deal with a different catcher, and a catcher doesn't have quite the throwing arm that Soto does. Um, and again, some more trouble, two outs, runner on third base, um, two outs, runner on in the bottom of the third, and he, Lorenzo Cain, it's an RBI double, and then Hosmer, there's that name again, Hosmer, RBI single. Right. So now it's, it's three to two and the A's are trailing. But then Lester locks in one, two, three, four, one, two, three, fifth. Top of the six. That's our Brandon Moss, the dramatic three run homer off the uh, Laker Dono Ventura. Uh, the A's actually tag on two more singles. It's a five run top of the six to take that seven to three lead. Lester goes back out there for the bottom of the six, one, two, three. Goes out in the seventh, gets the first two outs, gives up an infield single, gets the third out. He's through seven and dealing, right? So he takes the mound after retiring 13 of the last 14 to start the eighth inning. And now it's going to get a little squirrely for John Lester. But he's in the eighth inning as a starting pitcher. You know how many times A's postseason pitchers do this? Not very often especially nowadays starters don't pitch into the eighth in postseason games. He gave the A's everything he had this chance to win. So let's talk a little bit about the eighth inning, right? A CDS bar singles. He steals second quite easily. So, but it's seven to three at this point in the eighth inning, you're kind of counting outs and you're going to give up bases for outs meaning it's more important that you concentrate on the batters at this point with a four run lead, right? Um, it's different when it's a one run or two run, but at four runs, you can give up bases as long as you retire the hitters. So that's still, I remember watching, that still didn't bother me at all. And it shouldn't, don't let the, the base running affect you. Uh, Ioki grounds out, moving the runner to third, and then Lorenzo Cain comes up and hits an RBI single, right? It's, it's seven to four. Kane steals second base and Eric Hosmer's while Eric Hosmer's up the bat. And this was the one that always, if anything, this at bat, Lester walking Hosmer here. Again, it's that lefty on lefty. It's probably going to be his last batter and he walks Eric Hosmer. Uh, just like the walk in the first inning, it just, it just haunts them. Right. But so Lester leaves 
He's leading seven to four with one out. Yes, the two runners are on, but he did his job. And now it was up to the A's bullpen to close this thing out. And the A's bullpen couldn't do it. It was, you know, Luke Ragerson first, right? And again, Billy Butler, RBI single and a wild pitch. I mean, Gregerson doesn't shut the door. He gets out of the inning with the lead, striking out Perez and Fonte. So it's 7-6 going to the bottom of the ninth. So the A's have the lead. They're three outs away. They have their closer on the mound, right? You have Sean Doolittle taking the hill. And the first thing he does, he gives up a pinch hit single to XA Josh Willingham, a guy the A's did not get out the entire year. It was just lucky to give up. Actually, watching it, it was like, thank God it was only a single. But then again, you got the, the Royal speed comes into play, a sack bunt, and then the pinch runner Tyson steals third. Stolen base. This was not a stolen base against Lester. This was a stolen base against Doolittle. And then Ioki hits the sack fly. So their speed ties up the game. Doolittle as a closer, not able to close the game. Uh, that's bad, right? That's a blown save in a postseason clinching scenario. In a raucous stadium, a crowd that's just going absolutely – that crowd was a factor in that game. That crowd was a factor, and they were going nuts. And they always felt like the Royals had hope. And and with each stolen base, it seemed like – I'll let you continue here. But just, yeah, the momentum was building for Kansas City, and their crowd was part of it too. And an incredible atmosphere. And the, it was right there for the A's in that ninth inning, eighth and ninth inning, to really shut off that all the threats. And they just couldn't do it, yeah. They couldn't do it. And it's Gregerson and Doolittle, and they couldn't slam the door. All right, so the A's go in extra innings. The A's take the lead in the, in the top of the 12th. Alberto Cayaspa with a pinch hit single. A oh, thing of beauty. And Dan Otero's on the mound. Dan Otero gets the first out. And at that point, maybe it's my fault, I started to actually feel confident when they got the first out of the inning. And then Eric Hosmer comes up. And again, if there's any villain, it's Eric Hosmer. He ropes the ball to left center field. Now, Coco Chris had left the game in the top of the 11th. So Johnny Gomes is now in left and Sam Fold is in center. And they both go over for the ball. And they both leap at it. They can't make the catch. And I always thought, at least in my memories, that it was a catchable ball. And then I went back and watched it again uh, yesterday. I watched it, and there was no way anyone's going to catch the ball. It was so what, I would, I went back and watched it too. It would have taken an incredible catch. It was catchable, but it would have taken an incredible catch. And they both went for it, collided, and that's how Osmer ends up on third base. Yeah, it was it was pretty high on the wall. You would have yeah. had some incredible leaping ability yeah. to get up there. Yeah, um, I amazing and great job by Johnny Gomes getting and recovering the ball. Um, and keeping actually Hosmer at third. But so now, you know, Artero gives up the triple and they bring up Christian Cologne and Christian Cologne just hits a high chopper on the infield. Come on, right? It's just nothing. It's an infield single and a high chopper. Donaldson really had no play. The run scores. Um, Fernando Abad comes in to face Gordon, gets him out, gets him to foul out. So innings going, you got two outs. And the A's go to Jason Hamill here. And that was always questionable to me. Um, Jeff Samarja was not on the postseason roster for that game, which I thought was odd because he had experience as a reliever. And Jason Hamill didn't have all that much experience, and he's, he's a longtime starter. So 
Samarja throws a lot harder too. And he's kind of a guy who can come out and just throw gas in that situation. I thought that was a mistake in the roster configuration, having Hamill on and not Samarja. And it does come back to hurt them because you take out Fernando Abad, a left-hander, you bring in Hamill. And the first thing Cologne does is steal second base, right? The, the seventh steal of the game for the Royals. And again, three off of Lester, four off the bullpen. So yeah, they ran wild. They ran wild on the A's bullpen. And then Salvador Perez. The bat he couldn't do against the Giants a little later in the World Series. He comes through this time with the, the ball down the left field line against Hamill. But brutal. But again, it's not Lester. Lester did really well. He wasn't lights out. I'm not saying that, but he gave the A's every chance to win that game and put them in position to win. And two times, the A's were three outs away, one time two outs away. The bullpen couldn't close the door. And, you know, on that walk-off hit, Jason Hamill, it's a breaking ball off the plate. It's not a terrible pitch as far as the location, but it was still hittable. You know, it didn't have a ton of bite on it like that. And it wasn't too hard for Perez to reach out and get the bat head on the ball and yank it down the left field line. But, um, yeah, a couple things about that. I mean, G losing Giovanni Soto, underrated addition to the A's. They got him. They just paid cash for him to the Rangers to get him at the end of August. And he was a really nice defensive presence behind the plate, especially for his throwing arm. But he leaves the game, and that was every time the, the, the Royals needed a rally or needed some, something to facilitate a rally, they got that stolen base, the extra 90 feet. They just kept the pressure on, and then they were able to get the big hit. But you know what, Feldy, something else about that game – it was never, it wasn't really a huge home run from the Royals. It was never one big blow. A lot of them were sharp grounders that found holes. That chopper by Cologne you mentioned, just a chopper, I mean, right off the infield dirt, and that's your tying RBI single. That kind of stuff was working for them. That's what kind of team they were. They were a small ball team. They knew how to, they knew how to manufacture runs and make that comeback. Just the way they did it is exactly what they were built to do. And um, you saw it throughout that postseason, but a lot of different times where the A's could have shut it off there. They could have shut it yeah. off. How about a pitch out? The A's did a great job. Bob Melvin called a pitch out for one of those stolen bases, and the ball just bounces out of Derek Norris's glove, and he never even got a chance to make a throw. So the A's were set up anticipating a stolen base attempt, and they didn't get a throw on one of those steals too. Yeah, you talked about the way the Royals were putting the ball in play, and that was a game that really exposed Jed Lowry at shortstop. Yeah. Lowry had no range. His, his legs were barking. He's playing short. Um, he just couldn't get to anything. Right. Couldn't get to anything in that game. Um, yeah, there's just so many little things. And again, I think that's what gets me about the Lester stuff, about the people, especially, you know, social media people. I know we shouldn't engage all the time, but um, I like reading. You know, A's fans are passionate. And they're, I always feel their passion in the right spot. I just think this time it's a little misplaced. I think there's too much hatred for John Lester. Maybe it's because he was such a short timer with the A's and for what they gave up and the fact they didn't close the deal. They have this unlikability thing for John Lester. But to me, this isn't like Matt Holiday. A's fans should hate Matt Holiday. All right. The A's gave up a lot to trade for him. Uh, big power. He hated being in Oakland. He never really looked like he was given his all. Um, when he finally got hot, the A's were finally able to trade him. You know, they didn't get much for him. But then Matt Holiday, when he resigns with the Cardinals, he gets a no trade clause. It's a one team no trade clause that one team 
the Oakland A's. That's the guy you should hate. John Lester is not the guy you should hate. You know, looking back that that 2014 season, what a crazy season it was. And what a, it was such a tease. The 2014 season was a big tease for A's fans. I remember sitting at the podium in the A's media room, the Coliseum, the day the All-Stars are announced. And, and they bring out, they've literally got an entire podium filled with All-Stars. What a remarkable one that was six A's All-Stars, seven when you include Samarja, right. who was, he was added to the National League team, wasn't eligible to pitch because he was now an American League player. But six All-Stars. So you have Sean Doolittle, amazing story, right? Converted reliever, makes an All-Star team in 14. Scott Casimir, amazing story. They sign him not a couple years removed, I think, from indie ball. He becomes an yeah. All-Star pitcher. Um, Derek Norris, Ioannis Cespedes, Brandon Moss, great story. Another incredible find who resurrected his career with the A's. Brandon Moss and I'm leaving out one more. Josh Donaldson. Josh, Josh Donaldson, the biggest star that team had, really, along with Cespedes. And Josh Donaldson, who starts in that All-Star game, which was a big deal for the A's at that time, too, to get a starting position player. So that day when they were those six All-Stars, we knew they had six All-Stars. That was really a culmination of an incredible first half, best record. Holy cow, what's in store for the second half? You know, they just traded for Samarja. And, um, yeah, things just – you know, from that point to the finish line of the regular season in that wild card game, it was just, it was a tough pill to swallow, tough pill to swallow. That wild card game was by far the craziest, um, most incredible single baseball game I've covered. Um, heartbreaker, gut-wrenching for the A's. And I thought I was going to be writing about a great story again, headlined by Brandon Moss and his two home runs. Didn't turn out that way. I don't think I left the press box until like 2 a.m. that night. You know, it was just, it was, it was incredible. Just an incredible game and just an awful, awful game. Um, that you want to wipe from your memory yeah. as an A's fan, right? You, you want to wipe it from your memory. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's, it's such a tough, it's one of those, you know, A's postseason games that just haunt you. Um, and, I, and I feel it. And it, it, was, it was an awful experience to go through. I remember the next day uh, having lunch with Ken Korak out in Pleasanton. And you can sort of, sort of see Ken still have that dazed look in his eyes like, what did we just watch? How does that even happen? Um, it was just unreal. Um, but again, and I'll keep saying, and I know I'm not going to convince some people and some people are going to have it in their minds and that's fine. Uh, one thing about it, baseball has always been great is irrational hate. And, uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in that, <laughs> but I'm just trying to talk a little sense and don't put all your hate into John Lester. He's actually a really good a, they don't even get into that situation without John Lester. I agree with all of you who say it was a terrible trade because I said it from the moment it happened, it was a terrible trade. But that's not John, that's not on John Lester. John Lester gave his all and he gave the A's a chance to win. And and so just a, a little love for for John Lester as an athletic. Not the most optimistic rehash we just did, right? Not the most <laughs> optimistic at times for the A's, but it's such a great topic to dive into because people still have people are still fired up about it. I think still have a lot of passionate thoughts about it all these years later. Does it feel like it's been almost eight years? Eight years uh, in July. That one feels like a long time ago, to be honest to you. I, I, mean, I, was, part, I, I would say part of that is because we've seen so many incarnations of this A's team since then, right? Yeah. They went through a couple lean years after that, 15, 16, um, and 17. And then they started another postseason run, starting with the 2018 team where – Matt Olson, Matt Chapman have now developed. They're now cornerstones of this franchise, and things take a turn for the better. 
still not the greatest postseason um, fortune, obviously, but things, this roller coaster ride for the age, right? Of the cycles they go in. And, and that was the, uh, the 2014 wildcard game was closed one chapter. And what a crazy A's off season it was after that, because they did a house cleaning boy. They did a house cleaning and they brought in a shortstop named Marcus Simeon. And uh, we wouldn't have known it from that 2015 season, but what a player he eventually turned into for the A's. Yeah, I think it did that that loss changed a lot of things, right? Because it, it led to the trade of Josh Donaldson. And because you made that trade, then you traded Jeff Samarjan. Samarjan had another year on his deal. Mm-hmm. And the A's still made the trade of the way. A great trade, Bassett and Simeon. I mean, brilliant. Um, but you just kind of got rid of this team. This team wasn't going to be the same. Um, End of, an, end of an era with, with that team. The one thing about that game, the wild card game, we, we mentioned Adam Dunn, and Adam Dunn had announced this was going to be his last year. And he played a long time, had a lot of home runs, but he never played in the postseason. So this was his first chance to be on a postseason team. And Bob Melvin couldn't find him in a bat. And I know that there was one chance where he, where he pinched hit Nick Punto for Eric Sogard, so that could have been the spot. Um, but it just didn't work out. And I always felt a little sad that Adam Dunn didn't get into that game. Yeah, he was a, I didn't know for very long. Obviously he wasn't with the A's very long, but he seemed like a really um, a, a decent guy and obviously had a, a great career. It would have been nice to see him. I remember like the national, that, he was one of the national storylines going into that game was he finally made it to the postseason. What's it going to happen? Is he going to get in? And you're right. It would have been cool to see him getting at bat or somehow be able to participate on that stage. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But otherwise, I think, you know, for what the A's and the Royals and the show they put on and, you know, if you really want to torture yourself and go back and watch it on YouTube, the full game's there. Uh, And it is a little torturous. Uh, But it was, if you can take yourself out of being an A's fan and just appreciate what an unbelievable postseason baseball game that was. Yeah. That was fantastic. It was incredible. You know, as we kind of wrap it up here, Felder, we just talked about kind of one era closing back then, all these different eras we see with the A's. We kind of get the feeling, David, it's going to happen again this offseason, right? Once this lockout ends, and we're hoping it ends soon, the expectation is there'll be a flurry of moves around the game, trades made, free agents signed, um, as teams kind of start to really shape up their rosters um, in quick order to get ready for spring training. Um, And then we'll see what happens. We're expecting some – I think the, the prevailing thought is expecting some moves to A's to make some, some big moves again. And, and Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, both heavily rumored speculated, I should say that they may be on the move. Um, you know, Olson's been linked to, to the Braves interest, the Yankees, uh, even Texas Rangers, uh, even the San Diego Padres, which is interesting. I don't know if that would happen, um, but a lot of teams will have interest in Olson and other A's players too. Some of their starting pitchers too. Um Going to be interesting to see what happens. And again, uh, we said this before, what this roster is going to look like once they get on the field eventually in Arizona and who's going to still be wearing an A's uniform. It's going to be a wild, wild scene when they come to an agreement and teams trying to put together everything in three weeks. There are so many players that are unsigned, uh, free agents, arbitration eligible guys, um, there's going to, there's going to be such a flooding of the market. It could actually work in the A's favor. The A's could be able to swing some actual signings for guys who don't want to wait around or, 
or afraid, and they the A's can give them a give them a home right away. You're talking free agents, the free agent route. Free agents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could actually work in the A's' favor. I don't know if the A's are thinking that way, but again, because you still have Chapman and Olson and Manaya and Bassett and Montas, that you still have bones of a team that could be a playoff contender. You're going to okay. get Oriano back. Um, that maybe if you could add to that do something totally unexpected and add to it why the markets flood it price that usually keeps prices down for some of these players that you could actually improve your ball club and go for it again. I don't know if the A's will do that, but that situation I think is going to arise for them. Otherwise, maybe they do go full board fire set, right? Trade everybody start from scratch, which definitely could happen, but I think it's going to be harder now with a shortened spring training. Uh, to make the type of deals they want to make. And I say that all saying that everyone's abided by the rules and they're not been talking to players or wheeling and dealing or everything else. Because as far as we know, they might have all these trades already lined up, ready to go, agreed upon between the teams. They just haven't been able to say anything or talk to the players yet. We don't know that. But I think it's just for baseball itself, once this thing gets signed, it is just going to be the Wild West out there. Yeah. Well, if the A's do go kind of the, the fire sale routes and it's going to be a situation sort of like similar to after 2014, where this guy gets sold off, you get two or three prospects, each player that potentially gets, gets traded. We assume they're getting back some sort of bundle of young players, bundle of prospects, and then Feldy. It's always such a guessing game kind of, because it's one thing to, to make the call and say, okay, we need to get younger. We need to replenish a farm system that needs to be improved we're going to pull the trigger on some of these deals. It's one thing to pull the trigger. It's another thing to hit on the right prospects, right? And really get guys that eventually come to fruition for you. It's always a gamble. And and to a certain extent, you can do all the homework you want, but it's always kind of a guessing game because you never know what you're going to get, especially if some of those players are 19, 20 years old, not having played above, let's say, single A. Um, You just don't know. And we've seen examples of good and bad in this situation, right, from the A standpoint. Um, a standpoint over the years, you mentioned the Jeff Samarja trade with the White Sox. Worked out great. They got Semyon. Uh, they got Chris Bassett. They got Josh Fagley, who played a nice role, a complimentary role on some teams too. Um, Ron Hell Ravello never, he was like the fourth piece of that, never really came to fruition with the A's. But that's an example of a, um, a good trade that really worked out. And there's, there's other trades that, that you'd look at and say the A's scored there pretty well. But then and now we're going back a few years, the Matt Holiday trade, okay? Another one where you're like, well, they've got a great asset. They're going to move them. They're going to score with the players they get back. Who'd they get back? They got back a third baseman, Brett Wallace. They got a pitcher, Clayton Mortensen. They got an outfielder, Shane Peterson. None of those are exactly etched in, etched in the stone of A's history, right, for their memorable stints with Oakland. All those players combined out of that, you traded Brett Wallace for Michael Taylor, another prospect who didn't really pan out so some trades you score on when you get prospects and some trades you don't. But um, when you, when you're dealing in quantity like that and the return, you're going to get back in a trade. You have to, uh, you want to, you want to score and see these guys eventually come to fruition the way you think they're going to. And you just don't know. It's just a crapshoot Sometimes that's the nature of trades like this. That we anticipate the A's could be making maybe. Yeah. I think, you know, just after that 2014 season, I think the Samarja trade, you know, Bassett, Simeon, Fegley, good. Donaldson to the Blue Jays, Franklin Barreto, Brett Lowry, Sean Nolan, mm. Kendall Graveman. 
Mm. Now, if you had waited a while with Kendall Graveman and, and gone through all the surgeries and his comeback story, then you get an elite closer. Yeah. I mean, Sean Nolan made his way back to the big leagues in this last season, believe it or not. But Franklin Barreto was the was the key piece and just never happened. And the A's tried and tried and tried and never happened. Um, Brett Laurie had the one year with the A's and that was a disaster. They, their, their Red Bull budget went through the roof. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah. So it is hit and miss with prospects for Sunny sure. Gray trade, Sunny Gray trade. A's were holding all the cards in that trade, right? They had a big yeah. asset. They get three players back to the Yankees. Okay, one of them was James Caprillion. And based on last year, maybe they got themselves a nice rotation piece. Another guy, Jorge Mateo, Dustin Fowler, two position players just never really never materialized um, for the A's. So, so you just don't know. But, um, no, no. you know, maybe, maybe like you – said earlier, maybe they decide that, hey, we can get some free agents at some bargain prices and we decide to make another run with this team. I think that'd be music to the ears of A's fans because they do have a lot of talent and a lot of capability on this roster. Didn't turn out and didn't result in the postseason berth last season, but um, you can be very competitive with this team if you were to hold on to it. Yeah, and again, if we go to the expanded playoffs again and we go to the, the 14 total teams, seven teams in the league, the A's had 86 wins last season. Right, they're going to be right in there battling for a playoff berth if you bring everybody back and add to it. It's just what the A's want to do. It really is in their hands what they want to do with this ball club because of having another year of Chapman and Olson, Bassett, Manaya, Montas. I think they're in they're in a good shape to put a winning club on the field, a team that can compete if that's what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, last week. Little A's ballpark news. Well, A's ballpark is always in the news, right? It's kind of been in the yeah. news for the past couple of decades, really. Um, but right now, I think we could say it's more encouraging at this point than it's probably really been at any point in the past couple of decades, as far as a potential ballpark. Um, yeah. As far as uh, Howard Terminal, maybe um, Howard Terminal. Last week, uh, City Council, Oakland City Council, approved, um, certified the environmental impact report which is a big step. We've been talking about that EIR report for a while and it, it got approved and it just um, big step, a big hurdle for the city and the team to continue negotiating now towards a final agreement to actually be able to at some point start construction, get a shovel in the ground, possibly for ballpark. Still a lot of hoops to jump through Feldy. I'm not letting myself get too excited yet, but it was a big thing last week and it's farther along um, that we've seen anything come to this point. Yeah, this is, we've never gotten this far with an A's ballpark. We're in a very positive place with it. You're not hearing much talk about Vegas anymore. No. Um, this is this is where they're trying to make happen. They're, they're getting close to the finish line, but it's still miles ahead. Um, as you said, hurdles to leap over. They need to get those binding agreements. The money has to come through, but they're in a good spot. I think... I think the one thing that derails it, if the A's decide that they don't want it to happen, I think the A's are on the, the A's are driving this now. They can make this happen in Oakland if they keep this deal on track. I think things are lining up for them. Um, I think it's going the right direction. I think they are, they're in the best spot they've, they've ever been. And I continue, I, I, I always hope to see it continue in this direction. I don't see it not going in this direction. Yeah. Well, let's hope so, man, because it's been, it's been a long time, the storyline and that, you know, they, they tried to, they pull the trigger on the, on the Peralta site and that kind of um, obviously kind of backfired before it really got off the ground. 
Howard Turner was always a site you thought, man, if they could pull it off there, it's always been my thought, if they could pull it off there, that's the ideal kind of fantasy site you're looking at as far as the location. It just seemed like it'd be so hard to do. Well, they're getting there. They're making a lot of tangible progress right now. And still, still a lot that has to, you know, figuring out where some of this financing is going to come from and who's going to handle it. That's a very tricky situation, obviously. Um, but it is encouraging at this point. Right now, as we sit here today, we can say it's encouraging for the A's ballpark situation right now. That's a good thing. So let's enjoy I, it. You know, I saw one of the council men on, on one of the guys who voted no uh, on TV um, and he's sitting there going, and he's saying, I don't understand why they just build at the Coliseum. They should just build at the Coliseum. And, and I, and I get that sentiment because I've said that on the show before as well. But I also realize that the A's ownership group do not want to build at the Coliseum. You cannot tell them where to build. So as a councilman, you can't just say, I'm going to vote no, because I want them to build it here. That's not your decision. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like you can't tell a business owner what to do just because you're on the city council. That's not the right argument to make. You can make an argument against where the money's coming from or, or how it's going to be used or what's happening. But you just can't make it on the well, I don't think they should do it there. They should do it here. That was just like to me is like that's so bush league. Such a that's a, such a bad take by that guy. Yeah. yeah. He's not alone in that thought, though, when it comes to the call scene. There are a lot of people who feel like boy, it'd be really easy. And it would be the easiest site to build on. It would be. And a lot of people think it could work. It's got, it's got BART access. It's got freeways there. Why not just stick with what's been, you know, for the most part, as it worked since you came to Oakland in 68 and, and build right there. Um, the A's have bigger plans. They see revenue streams at Howard Terminal that they don't see at the current Coliseum site. Again, it's ambitious. It could be awesome if it happens, um, but it is, there's a lot that goes into it as we've seen. Um, they're getting closer, but let's see if they can take it to the finish line. So they do, I think it can be a great thing. It's obviously going to be a game changer for this franchise. Yeah, well, uh, let's put it this way, Joe. Let's say you're you're in the market for a new car, and you want to get the top-of-the-line Tesla. And I say, Joe, just get a Prius. Prius, same car. Saves you money. Good for the environment. It's all good. No, you want to buy a Tesla. Not, just because I think that this is easier and it's, it's just as well, that's not what you want. You want this. I can't really tell you to go buy a Prius when you want a Tesla. And that's that's not my decision. Now, do I think you're a fool? Sure. But what you want to do is what you want to do. And I have to abide by that. And the A's are trying to do that. And if I want to make an argument against you buying a Tesla, then that's the argument I have to make, not the argument. I don't think you should do that. Right. Right. Well, there you go. You're going to buy a Tesla, Joe? You're going to buy a Tesla? I didn't know. I love the band Tesla. I love the band Tesla. I've seen them in concert many times, but I probably won't be buying a Tesla anytime soon. But I see the comparison you're making there and why you bring something like that up it makes sense um, as far as what you're what you're saying right there. Let's hope it gets ballpark talk is slightly higher, a little, a little more fun to talk about than than labor negotiations and work stoppage talk, but just a little bit. Would you agree with me there? I'm ready to talk about some on-field stuff. Here, where, where do we order this? 2014 wildcard game. Labor negotiations, <laughs> new ballpark. We've really hit the, the. Oh my goodness, I know, I know. Maybe we recap the game the night the lights went out in the Coliseum or something like that next, or the, the time the possum made an appearance. Actually, the, the possum possum is fun. That, that's that's a rally possum. About. That's fun. It was the rally possum. Yeah. Oh, good stuff, David. Good stuff, man. Um, I'm hoping the next time we get together for the next episode, um, you know, the A's are, are on the field and there's some yeah. there's some real baseball. Um, stuff to talk about. Let's hope that's the case. I hope so too. I do. I really believe that that we are. I think 
come the beginning of March, I think baseball is going to be back on the field. Yeah, good to be back with you, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in to us. Um, as you know, you can find our podcast anywhere you go to find your podcast. You can find the green and bold. So, so keep listening to us, and we hope you're looking forward to a baseball season, um, seeing players on the field as much as we are. Feldy, great to talk to you. Thanks, Joe. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode. We'll see you next time on the Green and Bold Podcast. Thank you.